0: All right. Well, happy New Year, everyone! Officially, Um, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving uh, as the lead pastor of our church. Um, So good to uh, see everyone here. I'm glad the. I mean, I love Christmas. Jesus was born, but I'm glad the uh, holiday season is over and we are starting a new year. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, last September we launched a nine-month sermon series at our church called "Childlike Wonder." Uh, And we did this with the hope of helping us to rediscover a childlike posture in the way that we come to Scripture. And to that end, uh, we've been preaching through every story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the Jesus Storybook Bible, very well-known children's Bible. I read it to my kids. I recommended it to adults. Uh, if you uh, are maybe looking to start reading the Bible in the new year, but the Bible feels a bit overwhelming, would absolutely recommend the Jesus Storybook Bible to you. It's a really great start. But uh, every sermon, just so you know, uh, every sermon title throughout this year basically corresponds to its respective title in the book, okay? And that's why the title for today is The Teeny weeny True King, Um, Every time I say that, I I laugh at myself. I don't think there's a pastor in America right now preaching a sermon called The Teeny Weeny True King, but just so you know, I didn't come up with that. Um, That's in the book. And so um, all that to say, uh, today this sermon is for all the short kings in the room. Uh, We love you. We see you. You matter to God. Um, And with that, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 1 to 13 first samuel chapter 16 verses 1 to 13 and if you can follow uh, if you're following along on a mobile device i'm going to be reading from the niv okay first samuel chapter 16 verses 1 to 13 this is the reading of god's word the lord said to samuel how long will you mourn for saul since i have rejected him as king over israel Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, you come in peace. Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we jump into God's word. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. On this first Sunday of the new year, would you open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today. We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to be in the life of David, um, who is an extremely important character in the Bible. He's actually my favorite character in all of Scripture. And we're introduced to him for the first time here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of context, the big meta theme of 1 Samuel is basically Israel's search for a king. Okay, Israel's search for a king. Now, from the beginning, um, God never really wanted Israel to have a king. In fact, God wanted to be Israel's king. But we read in 1 Samuel 8, that's not really flying with the Israelites. They're watching the nations around them with their kings and their kingdoms. And they're like, we want that. We want what they have. If we're going to survive as a nation, we need a human king to protect us, to lead us, to fight our battles. And so God is like, you know what, fine. He calls his prophet Samuel, and he's like, they want a king, give them a king. And the first king they end up choosing, the first king of Israel, is a man by the name of Saul. And I don't have much time to talk about Saul today, but on paper, he's pretty much as good as it gets when it comes to who Israel envisioned to be their king. We read that he was the best-looking man in all of Israel. And the Bible specifically notes that Saul was a head taller than everyone else. And in those times, a person's height was very important because a person's height represented strength and leadership. It meant a leader could be trusted uh, to provide safety and military protection. Well, quickly, if you read the story, you realize that as impressive as Saul is on the outside, he's pretty underwhelming on the inside. And isn't that often the case, right? The people who talk the biggest game, the people who have the loudest voice in the room, a lot of times you get to know them and you realize they're very immature and insecure on the inside. And this is Saul. And at some point, God says, you know what, I've had enough. I'm done with this guy. And in 1 Samuel... Chapter 13, verse 14, we read that Samuel goes to Saul and he says, Because you haven't kept the Lord's commands, your kingdom will not endure, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Saul had everything you would want a king to have. He was gifted, he was strong, he was competent, he was powerful. But God says, what I want is a man after my own heart. I read that this week, and it choked me up, and I immediately prayed, Lord, let that be said of me, that above all things, that above anything anyone could ever say about me, before anyone could say, Jason is a good husband or a good father or a good pastor, let it be said of me, that is a man after God's own heart. When's the last time you used that descriptor to describe someone? We're often so busy talking about what people have accomplished, how many companies they've sold, where they went to school, how big their social media following is, as though these things are what make people worthy. God says, where is the one who is after my own heart? Find me him, find me her. That's the person I want. That's what I care about. You want to be a good parent? I know we have many parents in this room. You want to be a good parent? The greatest gift you can give to your children is not a beautiful home. It's not a fancy vacation. The greatest gift you can give to your children is to become a person after the heart of God. That is the greatest thing you can do for your kids. You want to make a lasting impact in the world? What the world needs now more than anything are not more gifted people or more intelligent people. We have a lot of those, and the world is still in ruins. What the world needs now more than ever are people who are after the heart of God. David Brooks, he wrote an amazing book called The Road to Character, And he wrote this book because he was noticing like he was running into these people and he said they radiated this inner light. He couldn't explain it, but he would meet them and anytime he met them, he realized these were people who listened to him, who valued him. They took care of people in their lives. They showed up for people who were going through hard times. They lived their life with so much humility and gratitude and then he looked at himself and he was like, why am I not like that? Like here's a guy, he was like, I've reached a lot of what people would consider worldly success. I'm a best-selling author, I have money, I'm a public figure, and yet I don't know if people would say the same things about me. And it occurred to him that there were two sets of virtues, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. He said, there are resume virtues, which are the skills you bring to the marketplace. It's how most people measure their life. By what they do, how much they have, who they are in public. And he said there are eulogy virtues. The virtues that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, loving, faithful, generous... And he talked about how it's so interesting, right, that if you were to ask someone what's more important, your resume virtues or your eulogy virtues, most people would say your eulogy virtues. And yet he said it's very interesting because everything in our culture and all of our educational system basically spends way more time teaching young people how to build their resume virtues than they do their eulogy virtues. You have parents spending hours teaching their kids how to throw a football, how to get straight A's, how to get into the college of their dreams, and not as much time teaching their kids how to respond to adversity, how to treat people different from them, how to say sorry, how to forgive. And so it's very funny, I think, that sometimes we get so surprised when really successful people in our lives end up being really immature, end up lacking inner character. But what did you expect? Because this is what our culture is training us to do. If there are young people in the room, if I could give you a piece of advice, okay? I talk like I'm like 70 years old. If there are young people. I know people tell you that you need to achieve XYZ by a certain age or else you're gonna feel like you're falling behind. And there is this great temptation to spend the best years of your life building up your resume virtues. Do not neglect your eulogy virtues. Just because you're young Because I guarantee you, it will get harder and harder to develop them as you get older and as you get more successful. Saul had the resume virtues. He lacked the eulogy virtues, and he was rejected by God. And so this is what's happening. This is the backdrop of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel is grieving the fact that Saul will no longer be king, and it's understandable that Samuel is grieving because Samuel and Saul have been through a lot. Samuel believed in Saul. He so desperately wanted Saul to be a godly king. And so when Saul turned out to be everything but a godly king, Samuel was devastated. It's like watching your friend go down a path you know is going to lead them to destruction, but you feel powerless to stop it. It's like watching a mentor you admired and you respected all of a sudden over time become someone that is completely unrecognizable to you. And so Samuel is heartbroken. And God comes to him, and the first thing He says is, "How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel?" Now quick note. Notice, God isn't rebuking Samuel, or God isn't rebuking um, uh, Samuel for grieving, just as we should never rebuke people for grieving. Grieving is healthy. It's necessary for healing. but God is rebuking Samuel for the length of his grief. He says, "How long?" will you mourn for Saul? Meaning there's a time and place for us to grieve, but at some point, God is gonna shake us up. He's gonna say, pick your head up because I need to show you something now. I need to show you something now. And God says to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. He's saying, Samuel, I know you put all your hope in Saul and you think there can't possibly be anyone better than him, but let me show you something. He's saying, I know you thought he was the one. I know you're devastated because he was the person that you envisioned to be your future husband. I know he looks like Jungkook. And you're like, I love this man. Why is this happening to me? And God is like, let me show you something. God is saying, I know you thought this was your dream home. And you're devastated and heartbroken because someone came over the top and paid 300K over asking value. And they snatch it from your fingers. And you're like, I'm never going to find a dream home again. And God is saying, get up. Let me show you something. And he says, let me show you something, Samuel, because I, wanna, I have chosen someone to be king. He says, fill your horn with oil, go to Bethlehem, Bethlehem of all places. We just talked about this a few weeks ago. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Not in Jerusalem in the capital city where all the stuff was happening, where all the important people were hang out, hanging out. He was born in Bethlehem. You see how everything in the Bible is connected, Old Testament, New Testament. And in Matthew 2, when the wise men ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? The chief priest, they quote Micah 5.2 that says this, but you Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Though you are small, among the clans of Judah. The Hebrew connotation there for the word small is not just small in size, but small in stature. Though you are insignificant, though you are easily forgotten, though people don't expect good things to come out of Bethlehem, you realize that God's king always shows up in the places you least expect him to, the places people aren't even looking. So you see, it's not just about what happened, it's about where this story happens that's just as profound. So Samuel gets to Bethlehem. He finds Jesse in order to anoint one of his sons as the next king. Jesse brings all his sons out except one, David. We read that he leaves him behind. He's tending sheep. Very interesting, right? Like David's own father does not even believe David has a chance to be the next king. So he's like, we'll bring seven, but there's no way it's you. Stay behind, tend the sheep. It's one thing to be overlooked by your peers and your colleagues. It's another thing to be overlooked by your own family, by your own dad. And so the scene is set. You have seven of Jesse's sons. are lined up. And immediately Samuel looks at the tallest one, Eliab, who's also Jesse's oldest son. And he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Surely. Funny, right? Samuel has just gone through this entire ordeal with Saul who had all the external qualifications of a king, who had all the power and all the competence, but who lacked character. You would think Samuel by this point would have learned his lesson, and yet without hesitation, he goes to the tallest guy in the room and he says, surely this is the one. He's still looking at the pedigree, the externals, the resume. It's like, Samuel, haven't you learned by now? And yet even this man of God cannot resist what I like to call the shiny person syndrome, okay? I know I'm going to call some people out in Los Angeles with this one, but let's just talk about it. We're in Los Angeles. There is no city in the world where externals matter more, where we are surrounded by shiny people and drawn to shiny things. Where people's behavior and posture toward others completely changes based on who the person is, who the person knows, what they do, how much they make, and how much influence they have. Where we crown people who are gifted, popular, and beautiful as our kings and our queens. Social media only makes this worse because it creates a culture in which often the only things we know about a person are their externals. The things that they choose to show the world about themselves and their lives. And no matter how many times this method of assessment fails us, no matter how many times we find out there's a different person behind the facade, we still can't seem to escape shiny person syndrome. It's a sickness. It's a drug. I talk to people all the time who date someone who's great on paper. Appearance, check. Career, check. Family, check. Character, questionable but they're willing to overlook all these things because they check all the other boxes and they only tell me after things go bad i should have known i should have seen the warning signs i should have seen the yellow flags i should have listened to what people said about this person they're like you know jason why can't i just have a solid normal grounded person and i'm like thank you you're learning first shiny person walks by surely that's the one That is God's anointed for me. This is the culture we live in, and this is Samuel. Eliab walks by, and he's like, Samuel is like, surely he's the one. But listen to what God says in verse 7. It's the crux of this entire passage. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But the Lord looks at the heart. Friends, our obsession with outward appearances is killing us. And it's a chicken and the egg situation because we live in a world that clearly judges you on the external. So what do we spend all of our time doing? Building up the external. Developing the external. Ignoring the internal. And it becomes this vicious cycle. This is why pornography is so dangerous. Because it trains people to look at exactly the things that God cares nothing about the outward appearance and not the heart. And so now you have all these people desperately trying to live up to these arbitrary standards that God could care less about. Why is our culture deathly afraid of aging? You know why? Because we've been trained to believe that you have to look a certain way in order to be loved. That it's your resume virtues, not your eulogy virtues, that really matter. Now, Some of you may be thinking, well, is it my fault I was born beautiful? You know, I mean, I just got great genes, good skin. Is it my fault that I'm successful? Is it my fault that I'm good at what I do? And I think it's very interesting that in verse 12, when they're talking about David, the Bible makes it a point to note that David was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. It's like a random detail to add in there. And it's like the Bible is giving a little nod to David. In case you're wondering, David wasn't an ugly guy. He was glowing in health. He was not lacking in the looks department. The point is not that it's bad to be successful, bad to be beautiful, or bad to be competent. The point is that those things don't matter to God like they matter to us. God doesn't have shiny person syndrome. God doesn't see what people see. God doesn't measure the way people measure. And so the story continues. Samuel goes through all of Jesse's sons one by one. They're paraded in front of him. He's like, nope, not him, not him, not him. And he gets to the end and he's like, Jesse, is this everyone? Because for sure God told me to go to Bethlehem and find the next king. Samuel is confused. And isn't this often how God works, right? He doesn't always give us the whole picture. God could have very easily said to Samuel, hey, go to Bethlehem. You're going to find a guy. He's going to be the youngest son tending sheep. His name is David. But God doesn't say that. He says, go to Bethlehem because I've chosen someone there to be my king. If you're in a season right now where you're asking God for clarity, for discernment, you're like, God, will you help me make a decision? God, is this what you want? God, what exactly do you want? Know that oftentimes God allows you to go through the process so he can teach you something about himself. Here, God is allowing Samuel and Jesse to go through this entire process so he can teach them something about himself. And so Samuel asks Jesse, Is there anyone else? And Jesse responds, Well, there is one, the youngest. He's tending the sheep. Now the word youngest is not the best translation because the Hebrew word there is actually a lot more condescending. Okay, a better translation would be there is one, the smallest, the runt, and he's tending the sheep. All the other brothers are there at this coronation worship service and they're like, I want to be king. David is tending the sheep. Very interesting detail. The telltale sign of someone who is ready to be a leader is when they stop grasping for leadership. Telltale sign of someone ready to be a leader, not when they're good with the big things, but when they're faithful with the small things. True leadership is not what happens in the front or on a stage. True leadership is tending sheep during a coronation service, is doing what nobody else wants to do, It's showing up for the ordinary, mundane task. You see, what we see as insignificant and small, God sees as the marks of a true leader. That small interaction that nobody saw, God saw it. That one random act of kindness you do after church, nobody saw, God saw it. Because God sees what people do not. And so Samuel says, Bring me that son the one who's tending the sheep. And the moment David arrives, the Lord says, rise and anoint him, that's the one. And we read that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now, a question I asked is, what did David do here to prove that he was a man after God's heart and thus worthy to be king? Because early on it says, for the Lord is seeking a man after his own heart. Well, what did David do? All he did was ten sheep. They brought him, and God says, that's the guy. Rise and anoint him. All he did was show up, and God says, that's my guy. David doesn't even say a word, but you see, that's the most profound thing about this story. David doesn't do anything to prove himself. In fact, in verse 1, when God says, I have chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king, a better translation is, I have provided for myself a king. David does not choose God. God chooses David. And God doesn't choose David because David was such an upstanding, amazing guy. In fact, if you read the story of David, you know he's pretty jacked up. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. He makes a lot of questionable choices. How is this guy a man after God's own heart? But you see, that's the point. The one thing David understood was that there was nothing about him that was special. There was nothing about him that inherently made him worthy to be a king, but that any favor he received was a free gift of God's grace. And by choosing David, God is overturning everything we understand about earthly kingdoms. He was showing us that his kingdom is not for the strong and for the powerful, but for the meek and the lowly. He was showing us that his kingdom was not based on merit or performance, but based on sheer grace. He was showing us that his kingdom was not marked by fear or domination, but by radical love. And by choosing David, God was pointing us to another king who would come hundreds of years later, a man who was utterly and truly after God's own heart, one who wasn't impressive by any means, According to Isaiah 53, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. There was nothing to attract us to him. He was one who was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. Jesus was not shiny in any way, shape, or form. He was certainly not the type of man most of us would have envisioned being a king, especially when this king's crowning achievement was not a military victory or a successful political campaign, but a Roman cross where he bled and he died so that you and I would know the full extent of God's love for us. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It begins with an understanding of God's heart for you. David didn't love God because he was just a loving person. David loved God because he knew God loved him. Our problem is not that we don't love God enough. Our problem is that we don't understand the love God has for us. Because if we did, it would change us. It would change everything. It would turn us into people who don't need to achieve a certain status in order to be worthy. It would turn us into people who don't feel like we need to look a certain way in order to be accepted and to be loved. Because we would know we already have all the love and acceptance we need in him. This is why David, even after he's achieved every external accolade a person could achieve. This is why David, after achieving every resume virtue out there to achieve. This is why he says, one thing I ask, that will I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One of the consequences of living in a world that is so fixated on the external is that we begin to project that belief onto God. And we believe that's how God looks at us. That we have to clean ourselves up, we have to clean up the mess, we have to perform, we have to achieve, we have to look a certain way in order for God to love us. But you see, God doesn't measure the way the world measures. You know, when I come home from work or when I come home from Sunday, one of my favorite things to do is when my kids greet me at the door, I say, give me a second, let me go change so we can play. And I put on my sweats, I put on a Mickey Mouse shirt or a tie-dye shirt, and we play. And you know what the most amazing thing about being a dad is? It's that I don't need to look a certain way for them. On Sunday, I have to wear my best clothes. I have to be articulate. I have to say big theological things that impress people. At home, I don't have to do anything. I can come, I wear my comfortable clothes, and we just wrestle. It's amazing. God wants us to know that because of Christ, when we come into his presence, we don't have to be anyone or do anything to become worthy of his love. We can take off the mask, we can come to him as we are, knowing that we are not loved because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And so this morning, as we open up this new year, may we receive this great love God has lavished on us, so that we too can become people after God's own heart. Let's pray. I want to give us a moment of reflection. And I want us to give ourselves, take a hard look at ourselves as we respond to this word. And kind of as our brothers Jeff and Wes said today, how do you think people would describe you? What are the things that you put forth that you want people to see? what people to say about you? Would they highlight your resume virtues? Or would they highlight your eulogy virtues? And if your resume virtues, I want to give us a moment to ask ourselves, what is it that we feel like we're not receiving, that we feel the need to continue to build And continue to project these resume virtues. And as we sit in that space, why don't we pray for the Holy Spirit to remind us that everything we need, we already have in Christ. That God looks at us with love exactly as we are. Let's just take a moment to sit In God's love for us. God, as we look forward to this new year, I know we're only a week in, and many of us are already exhausted. From the rat race of trying to be someone, trying to resolve to accomplish something, achieve a certain status by the end of this year, whatever that may look like, and it's exhausting. But we thank you that in this space, when we're in your presence, we don't have to be anyone. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to look a certain way. We don't have to perform. We don't have to achieve. We thank you that in your presence, we can simply receive the love you have for us in Christ. God, help us to become a people and a church not known for our resume virtues. Help us to become a people and a church after your heart a people who care about the things that you care about, the people who embody Christ in all the places we live, work, and play. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, that we have everything we need in you. We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.